in my previous church where I served 19 years and four months, every Sunday I preached in front of a huge cross. It was about probably 12 feet tall and eight feet high at least, built to be rugged. It was, uh, it was not an ornate, capped, polished cross. It was, they put it in the center of the sanctuary and they meant it to, to not look nice, but to reflect the cross on which Jesus died. So every Sunday we all stood before the cross. I did when I preached, the people did when they sang. Uh, but one Sunday it struck me that we weren't standing before the cross as we should. That although that we worshiped at the foot of that cross, that we weren't, we weren't really recognizing where we were and, and what that ought to mean to us. So you think of the people standing around the cross uh, where Jesus was crucified. How many of them were guilty of nailing Jesus to that cross? Of course, the Roman government, they were responsible for uh, putting him on the cross. Uh, the Roman soldiers were guilty. Uh, they nailed him to that cross. The Jewish leaders were guilty. They delivered him over to the Romans so that he would be crucified. Even the thieves who hung beside him, uh, although they were guilty of their own crimes, they were guilty of nailing Jesus to that cross, just like we, you and I, are guilty of nailing Jesus to that cross because our sins put him there, your sins and my sins. So this morning I sort of wish we could have a cross here in the sanctuary because today as we open the book of James and he puts our faith on trial, you and I are going to find ourselves standing guilty before the cross. Now I want to remind you of the context of the scripture that we've been looking at. James has been talking about the wars and conflicts that often arise among God's people. Of course, sometimes they arise in our churches, sometimes they erupt in our families, and they're common, commonplace in our world. But even in the church of that day, obviously people had used their tongues like flaming arrows to start fires. James observed, he said, your prayers aren't being answered. And when you do pray, he said, you pray outside the will of God. That's a common problem that we have yet today. So in such a setting, the Spirit of God was grieved. The movement of God's Spirit was quenched. Instead of being responsive to God's Spirit, these people had a broken relationship with God's Spirit. And so on the heels of such a conflict, remember James has just begun chapter 4. He's saying, uh, what is the reason for wars and conflicts among you? So on the heels of that, he seeks to redirect the heart of those receiving his message. He wanted them to be right with God, but in order for them to be right with God, he had to show them that they were standing guilty before the cross. Now, most of us have never been part of a war. Those who have are never quite the same. It changes them. Some of them come back wounded in body. Some of them come back with wounded emotions. But battles in the church also leave damage, lasting damage to those involved. Some people get hurt. You know that happens. It just does. Some people leave. The people who are part of that conflict, whether they leave or stay, are never quite the same. I remind you that in 1861, America entered a bloody civil war, 
Now, it was expected and predicted to be, by those who entered into it, a brief and bloodless military adventure. But after four years, it had taken the lives of 750,000 men. And the generation that survived the Civil War, whether they were part of the North or the South, spent the rest of their lives with grief and loss. There are consequences of war among the saints. And that's what James deals with in this fourth chapter. But we've conveniently turned our faces away from the consequences. We've ignored the people who've been hurt as well as the spiritual damage caused by the ravages of war. Down through the years, many good things can happen in and through the life of a church. But we also have to admit that bad things can happen. People get hurt. I've served in churches where the scars of leftover battles left them frozen, unable to move forward. I've served with staff members and staff members' children whose lives were negatively impacted by war among the saints. War sometimes leaves scars on the landscape, but they also leave scars on people's lives, and we know that to be true. Last Sunday, we talked about uh, the wars that, uh, and conflicts that erupt in the lives of believers. Sometimes we just stick our heads in the sand and, and pretend, pretend those things never happen, and we think if we don't think about it and we don't talk about it, it all just goes away. Well, that's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany in World War II. According to Peter Wyden in his book, the Hitler virus in Dachau, a city where one of Hitler's most awful death camps was located, life went on as normal. There's a death camp in the city, and life goes on as normal for many of the notables who had been unable, who had been able to conveniently turn their heads away from the horror of what was happening. And when the American soldiers liberated the camps, the people who lived in the city were forced to walk through the camps and look at the carnage and see the piles of human corpses. Some fainted, some cried, some shook their heads, and, but by far most of them, after seeing uh, the aftermath of war in an effort to avoid the scene, just turned away whispering, unbelievable. Well, this morning it's my prayer that God, by the work of His Spirit, will lead us to see, you and I to see, the carnage, the carnage that sin has left in our lives and in our homes. We need to see the hurt, the heartache, the brokenness, the decay, the wreckage from past and present conflicts that infect not only churches, but families. First, we consider verse 5. It's a verse we just sang about, by the way. Uh, verse 5. James says in chapter 4, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He's made to dwell in us. Uh, James reminds us that the Spirit God has placed in us, another reading of that, He jealously desires us. He wants us to come back to Him. If you're here today, it is the desire of God's Spirit. It is the desire of God's heart. Wherever you are, wherever you've been, if you're a million miles away from Him today, you feel that in your heart. It is the desire of God's heart 
that you come back to Him. But God demands that we face the truth concerning the damage caused by our sin. We look at verse 6. And in verse 6 we see there are two contrasting attitudes, and we're going to see that in this passage of Scripture. One is pride, and the other is humility. The Bible says that the proud person resists the working of God's Spirit. As a result, God resists him. The proud person resists acknowledging any guilt concerning sin. You might remember the story in the New Testament in Luke chapter 18. Jesus uh, tells about the, the Pharisee uh, and the publican. Uh, one was a religious man who came into the temple. The other was uh, a sinner. He's pictured as a sinner. The Pharisee comes into the temple and all he can see is himself and his goodness. And he thinks he's doing God a favor by being there. And so he prays and he says, God, I thank you uh, that I'm not like this man standing beside me. God, you know me. You know I tithe. You know I do this. You know I do that. And I thank you. I thank you most of all that I'm not like this man standing beside me. And the man standing beside him knew himself to be a sinner. And the Bible says that he couldn't even so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but only could beat himself on the chest and say in God's presence, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus observed that one man went home right with God and the other didn't. And the man that went home right with God is the man who came face to face with his sin. And so here's the first point of the message. Sometimes walking through the aftermath of battle, aftermath of conflict, you and I must face the consequences of our sin. And so that's what James wants to happen first in this passage of Scripture. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, he says, in the middle of verse 8, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. I know that some of you, uh, we're not at that picture yet. We'll come back to that. You're a little ahead of me. So uh, some, some of you have been studying the book of Nehemiah on, uh, on Sunday morning in Sunday school. And when you look at the book of Nehemiah, you find that, that Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem uh, after decades after it had been uh, ravaged by war. He finds a small group of people there who are trying to put the pieces back together. And when Nehemiah comes back, he walks through the, through the aftermath of battle. He walks through the wreckage. He walks through the carnage. He looks at it, looking at it with, with the help of God's Spirit. And the Bible says that when he saw it, he sat down and he wept and mourned for days. You and I need to allow God to show us the truth about ourselves and about our church. We simply cannot move forward until we stand before the cross. Shortly after the Babylonian army ransacked Jerusalem, Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. And as he wrote the book of Lamentations, he seems to have written it walking through the streets, looking at the wreckage, looking at the carnage, looking at the damage caused by sin. And not only the sin of other people, but his own sin. He says in verse 8 of chapter 1, The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against His command. So he wept. Now let's look at that picture. During the last days of World War II, a train load of Jews was diverted to the city of Namarine. While stopped there, SS guards executed hundreds 
of those Jews, and they buried them in mass graves. On May the 17th, 1945, American soldiers forced the people of the town of Namarin to dig up the bodies of the dead and bury them in individual graves. And the photo on the screen shows an American soldier standing beside a cross on which he posts their guilt for allowing these people to die. And as I looked at the picture of these people standing guilty before the cross, it made me think of how you and I also ignore the consequences of our words and actions in the church. You and I also are standing guilty before the cross. James is calling us to face the truth about our own hearts. Again, we look at those verses. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. As Nehemiah wept when he saw the carnage of Jerusalem. As Jeremiah wept after Jerusalem collapsed before his eyes. You don't have a hootenanny when you stand before the cross. Standing before the cross, you see your own heart. You see yourself as a sinner with guilty, with dirty hands. You see yourself as a sinner with a dirty heart. We need to stand before the cross and realize that we need to be cleansed and our hearts need to be purified. Instead of clapping and dancing and rejoicing, we need to fall on our faces before God with great brokenness for the result of sin in our lives, for what it's brought to our families, to our lives personally, and to our churches. So to this group of believers whose growth and gladness had been hindered by wars and conflicts, James called them, and this is the second point of the message, to commit <clears throat> to a new kind of fellowship. In other words, we have to face the consequences of sin, but we need to commit to a new kind of fellowship. Verse 11 of chapter 4. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You know, it's always easier to point a finger at somebody else than to face sin in your own life. It's easy to measure your life by the standard of someone else. That's wrong. We are to measure our life by the plumb line of God's Word and by the standard of the spotless purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no other standard by which to measure my life. I cannot look at someone else and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like this person over here. I need to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and examine my life against His life. That's the thing to do. Is there something in my life that hinders God from working in my church? That's a question you need to ask yourself, and I need to ask myself. Has some past involvement of mine in some sinful activity hurt my church? Have my words been used as pointed arrows to pierce someone else's heart or to damage their character? As you listen, you might think, who is this guy to suggest that I'm standing in judgment as I come to church today? I don't want to be reminded of my sin. I want to be encouraged. But before God can encourage you, He has to convict you. James reminds us, and here's the third point, that we're standing before the judge right now. Right now. Verse 12, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? 
the judge, James says, before whom all of us stand guilty, is able to save. He's able to spare us. He's able to forgive us. He's able to deliver us from what we deserve as we stand guilty before the cross. All of us are sinners. All of us. All of us deserve to be cast out of God's presence. And let me just tell you something. The older you are, the more you know that to be true about your own heart. The older you are, the more you realize that you're undeserving of anything that God could give you, of any prayer that you could pray, you're undeserving of the answer. And if God allows you into His heaven, you understand it will only be by grace. It won't be by any goodness in you because the older you get, the more wreckage and carnage you see in your own heart and in your own life from your own sin. But God demands more than an acknowledgement of guilt. He demands repentance. He says, be miserable and weep and mourn. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. If, as I stand guilty before the cross, if I see myself as God sees me, I will be broken. Let me tell you, I can remember one time in my life when, I, when this happened to me, and it probably needs to happen more often than it did, than it has. But one time in particular, I remember very clearly God showing me my heart and my life and my family and the damage that my sin had brought to my family. Some of us are studying David in Sunday school and we're watching the wreckage that came into David's life as a result of his sin. It was like a domino effect that he sinned and then the dominoes continued to fall. They never stop falling. They never stop. The judge knows the true nature of my relationship with him. He knows the days that I chose to resist the devil. He also knows the days, the, the days that I chose to embrace the devil's suggestions. Now, uh, I stand guilty before the judge. He can bring his gavel down and say that about each one of us. Nevertheless, James tells us he's able to save. But he's also able to destroy. Have you pondered that? Do you realize that Nehemiah found himself in Jerusalem that was a ruin because God had destroyed it because of sin? Do you know why Jeremiah wept as he walked through a war-ravaged nation? It was because God destroyed it due to their sin. The judge before whom we stand is able to, to save, but it should cause us to tremble that he's also able to destroy so finally, James calls on them to return to God, to return to God. This means a new submission to God. Verses 8 through 10. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The very fact that James could write a group of church members and suggest they need to submit to God says they were doing just the opposite. They were living in active rebellion against God. Are you? Has your life been placed under God's authority? Is your heart surrendered to His will? Or are you resisting His will? There are times when things get upside down in our lives. Instead of resisting the devil, we resist God. When I act on one of the devil's suggestions, 
I have sided against God. The Bible tells me to resist Him, and the Greek word means to wage war against Him. But if I'm yielding to the devil instead of resisting Him, then I'm waging war against God in my spirit. And He knows the truth about my heart. How do I draw near to God? Well, first you draw near to Him in repentance. You admit, you say, God, I am a sinner whose hands need to be cleansed and whose heart needs to be purified. That's me, God. That's me. You draw near to God in repentance. Second, you draw near to God in obedience. You say yes to Him. You say yes to His call. You say yes to His will. You say yes to whatever it is that He's asking you to do. And third, you draw near to Him in utter humility. And that's what James says, you need to humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Utter humility means you realize how you stand before Him. You stand before a judge who can save or he can destroy. And you just have to humble yourself and say, God, please, have mercy on my soul. And there are three great promises here. First, he says, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. He will run like a scared rabbit because the demons believe and they tremble. They bristle in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He will meet you in your journey toward Him. You remember the story of the prodigal. As far away as he lived from his father, when he came home, he found his father with open arms. He wrapped his arms around him. He wrapped his robe around him. He wrapped his love around him. And God will do the same thing for you if you will return to Him. Third, He will exalt you. He will lift you from sin and shame and gloom into the glory of His presence. This very morning... Every one of us here has a response to make because all of us, me included, we're standing guilty before the cross. What is the response that God requires? We have it right here before us in the little book of James. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Lord, we have stood before your word today, and it's difficult to stand before your word, Lord, just to read it and to hear it and to see what you require. But Lord, we also must come face to face with who we are in your presence. And perhaps this morning, Lord, you have brought one person or another or maybe a whole group of people or all of us, Lord, to see our need, our need of you. And so, God, I pray that in this invitation time there will be a response not to a message, not to a messenger, but to your spirit, Lord, as you move from person to person, from heart to heart, and you show them, Lord, the damage, the carnage, the wreckage that has come into their life and their family and their church as a result of their personal sin. We are guilty before the cross.